Hello, my two-legged friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of the Abby Khan Show. Guys and girls who haven't already subscribed, I would urge you to do so, so you can get the latest and not miss any episodes, which I'm sure you don't want to do. I would also appreciate you guys if you could leave the podcast a rating. Just go over to Apple Podcasts and just shoot a rating on there and just leave me an honest review. I would appreciate that very much. And I would also appreciate you listening to today's episode, which is why you're all here. So I'll stop rambling on. Today I'm talking to Arthur Lynch. Arthur is a PhD student of sports science. He is a extremely intelligent individual and you'll sort of get a little bit of that during this podcast but I had to basically tell him to start with to dumb things down almost not just for the viewers and listeners but for myself as well we basically said okay how deep do we want to go and I said okay let's just simplify this as much as possible so that people get a really good understanding as many of you guys know if you can't explain something simply you don't really know it so Arthur does this beautifully well and really gives us some good reference points as well for you guys to delve a little bit deeper into your own education and your own study. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Mr. Arthur Lynch. You're listening to The Abby Khan Show, a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible. My name's Abby Khan. I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, Find out how they optimize their lives for success and how you can do the same. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Mr. Arthur Lynch in the house, in the building. I'm really excited to speak with this guy and pick his brain today. Arthur, thank you so much for jumping on the show. Wow, there's a there's an enthusiastic introduction if I've ever <laughs> experienced one. Happy, how's it going? How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you, really well. Well, mate, it's like what it's two a.m. over here, so I'm really pumped and excited. You have to be at this time of morning, mate. But no, things are good. For the uh, for the people that don't know who you are, can you just give us a little bit of a background and who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. So my name's Arthur Lynch. Uh, based out of Limerick here in, in Ireland. Uh, so you were saying it's 2, 2 a.m. over there and it's about 5 p.m. over here. <laughs> um, so I am a PhD student day-to-day in, in sports science. Uh, I have a degree in, in sports science here from the, the University of Limerick. Um, Coaching-wise, uh, I've been working in gyms for about eight or nine years now. Uh, working as a personal trainer, fitness instructor, and then latterly as a powerlifting coach. And in terms of my own sort of pursuits, uh, I suppose how I got into weight training, started off, started just playing playing rugby as a teenager, and then got into lifting weights through rugby, um, long story short. And then eventually kind of got to the stage where I got a little bit fed up and... and um, I didn't really want to play rugby anymore, so just focused on lifting weights full-time, essentially. Then after a couple of years, ventured into bodybuilding, did a few shows there, uh, got sick of that. (laughs) (laughs) Then moved on to powerlifting, and I have since then sort of stuck at that, and that's sort of where I've I've carved out my own sort of um, uh, niche out of, uh, so I, I... do a podcast kind of like yourself um, that's pitched predominantly powerlifters 
Um, it's where a lot of my coaching work is, and I am a. I have an involvement in the the executive committee in the the Irish Powerlifting Federation, so that's kind of where most of my involvement is. And then I suppose how I got into Sigma, or how sort of I met I met Danny sort of through a friend, and I suppose he saw me as having a particular skill set that was distinct from what some of the other coaches had at, at Sigma, and that was you know my my, my background in sports science. Uh, so I've been working with him since twenty. 15 I think um, and just doing some some writing uh, some and a little bit of coaching work with him um, but my, my problem is I, I kind of have about four part-time jobs <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't really been able to kind of go head first into anything at the moment because obviously I'm still studying um, but I'm in the final year of my PhD now so hopefully once that comes to an end um, I'll be able to focus on on one thing <laughs> What was it about powerlifting that's made you stay there? Obviously, with rugby and, and bodybuilding, you got a bit sick of it. What What is it about powerlifting that's made you sit there for a longer time? Yeah, well, I suppose I glossed over some of the details there as to why I left those those uh, those endeavours. Um, but uh, with, well, I suppose with bodybuilding, the main reason why I left was because I felt I couldn't do what I wanted to do with it without having to turn to the the obvious sort of uh, elephant in the room of, of drugs, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, whereas when I looked at powerlifting and I said, all right, well, you know, I can get to a very high level without having to, to dabble in any of that kind of stuff, which is not something that, that ever appealed to me, you know? Mm. Um, and I've been able to do that since... Not only that, but I also feel like there's a much better community in powerlifting. Now, there's there's not so nice individuals in powerlifting as well, but it, it seems to be there seems to be a lot fewer sort of self-absorbed individuals mm. in powerlifting. Um, so it lends itself to to kind of a better community. Um, and then it seemed to tie in really well with coaching, you know, because powerlifting. It has a very low barrier for entry. To get very good at powerlifting, you know, you have to be, you have to be somewhat genetically blessed, and you also have to work very hard. But to just get into powerlifting, uh, like you literally just need to be able to lift the bar, and then from whatever start point that you're you're at, everyone has the ability to get stronger. Everyone can improve. Everyone um, can improve their technique can improve the, their, their total. Uh, so all those kind of things appeal to me. Um, and having worked with individuals as well and seeing how they have progressed and seeing how it's benefited other aspects of their life, you know, so getting strong physically has helped them in other domains. Um, I suppose that's amongst the reasons why I've, <laughs> I suppose, stuck with powerlifting <laughs> the longest. <laughs> I guess you said there, like getting stronger, you get this sort of exuberant self-confidence and more self-worth as well, which is really cool. I've got a couple of people that I've trained before, um, not specifically powerlifting, but strength training and their their demeanor and how they carried themselves and their character just astronomically improved. And it was really cool to see that happen coming from a very shy individual. They wanted a little bit of body composition, but nothing huge. But when we focused on something like getting them really strong, they changed so much and it was so inspiring to see. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'd have experienced that as well. You know, I mean, when I say 
I've seen people getting into powerlifting. Not only that, but but as you say, just more generally strength training, and it, it's not that dissimilar from powerlifting. Like this, the the processes are the same. Mm. How you get stronger yeah. for just someone who just wants to be generally a little bit stronger mm. is by and large the same process that you apply to someone who wants to uh, maximize their powerlifting total. It's just that in the latter, you take things a little bit further, you push it a little bit harder, they're a little bit more driven, things things like that, you know? Um, but the, the, the processes are the same. Absolutely. So I want to start with, with touching on the the fundamentals, essentially, to, to muscle hypertrophy, like how we actually build muscle tissue from a training and even a nutritional standpoint. So I want to start on the nutritional standpoint. Are there any specific fundamentals that you need to have in place in order to build sufficient amount of muscle tissue do we have to be in a caloric surplus do we need to optimize the mTOR pathway through leucine like what are the sort of basics that people need to have to you know in order to actually have anything there to build yeah um so probably a good resource uh to 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 point listeners towards would be the the muscle and strength training and nutrition pyramids from from eric hams yeah not sure if you're familiar with those, but I am, yeah. that'd be a good place to start mm. um, because they take a lot of the, the fundamental concepts and just sort of break them down pretty simplistically for a lot of people, you know? Um, so if all of this is new information to you, that would be a good place to to refer to. But uh, for the purpose of this discussion, I'll try and explain them as well as I can. So... When we're talking about nutrition, the, the fundamentals, uh, number one, you you do need to have sufficient calories um, in order to, to hypertrophy muscle. Now, whether that need, means you need to be in a surplus, uh, a, a large surplus or a small surplus, it depends on the individual. Um, the... The more inexperienced and the more uh, n- the newer you are in this whole process, the more you can essentially get away with. So you will see things where by uh, you can be in a deficit, losing fat and and gaining a little bit of muscle just because you're new to training and uh, you're you're just so responsive to everything. But as you get more and more experienced, the the likelihood that you're going to get away with uh, being at maintenance or in a slight deficit and able to add muscle, uh, it, it's, it's, it's less and less likely. So at that point, you likely need to be in some sort of a calorie surplus. Now, it doesn't need to be a 1,000 calories of a surplus per day, something like that, but it could be a much more, a much more modest um, a surplus. What you set that at will depend on the individual, and it, to give a blanket recommendation, just uh, wouldn't really be possible. Everyone's so highly individual uh, in that in that respect. So that's calories. That's the first one. So there needs to be sufficient calories to hypertrophy a muscle. There also has to be sufficient protein. Uh, now, what 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 would be considered sufficient protein? Um, if you look at the RDA of protein, it's uh, 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. But that would be what would be considered the minimum to uh, prevent a deficiency. So it wouldn't be optimal for muscle hypertrophy pro, uh, purposes. 
for for muscle hypertrophy, you're looking at somewhere between 1.6 to about 2.2 grams per per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, and how you decide where you are on that scale, so whether you be closer to 1.6 or 2.2, really depends on how many calories you're able to take in. You know, based on what your your rough target is, depending on your your goals, your body size, all that kind of things. Um, and then, uh, so I don't know, what was I saying? <laughs> um, <laughs> We're on that one point six to two point two grams. Um, yeah. So, so basically, just seeing how you respond, um, and you can you can push that higher. Uh, you know. Depending on, like you know, if you if you just like eating protein, you can eat more of it. But beyond a certain point, there'd be no additional benefit. So you you're likely to see benefits up to about that two point two grams per kilogram um, uh, level. But beyond that, there's no real additional benefit. Um, it's not considered, you know, unsafe. Like there's a lot of myths thrown around about high protein diets and that they'll. Uh, you know, leach calcium from your bones and cause kidney damage and all sorts of unfounded, um, uh, uh, unsubstantiated claims, at least in healthy individuals. And if you're looking for more information on that, I, I'd recommend uh, Jose Antonio. So he's done a lot of stuff on high protein diets and their safety because it, it was basically born out of frustration from hearing for so many years these myths that, you know, Protein will cause uh, various different uh, deleterious health outcomes. And so he, he studied it empirically and found, no, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and he went as high as, um, I think it was 4.4 grams per kilogram, wow. like really high protein, um, and, uh, and found nothing. So anyway, uh, yeah, somewhere between 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein per day. Now, the next thing you want to consider with protein is distribution. Obviously, the total that you take in for the day is the most important thing when it comes to protein. But then after that, once that's taken care of, you might want to look at distribution. So this obviously ties in with how often you're going to eat per day. So let's say, for instance, if you ate three times per day and you had what might be seen as a a, a typical protein distribution where you have a small amount at breakfast, moderate amount at lunchtime, and then the majority of your protein for the day is coming at dinner time. So that's what we would term a skewed distribution. Um, There is evidence to suggest that that's not ideal for for muscle building purposes, particularly if that low um, protein meal, say your breakfast, say there's only like 10 grams of protein with your breakfast, there's evidence to suggest that that wouldn't be ideal because as you alluded to earlier on, you wouldn't be crossing that leucine threshold at, at that meal. So the, um, the research suggests that in order to stimulate and maximize muscle protein synthesis from feeding, there needs to be a sufficient quantity of leucine present at the, the feeding time. So relating that back to our skewed distribution of protein intake, if that lower meal doesn't hit that leucine threshold, uh, you're not going to maximize muscle protein synthesis at that meal. 
and played out chronically, um, that would be suboptimal for muscle building purposes. So it's important to have a sufficient quantity of protein um, with each each meal. Now, relating that back to our skewed distribution, what you would be better off doing is taking some of that excess protein from your from your uh, high protein meal. So let's say you were well in excess of the amount of protein needed to maximize muscle protein synthesis for that individual meal. Well, you could partition some of that over to another meal that was insufficient. So the, the total for the day would stay the same, but the distribution would change so that we'd get a more uh, even distribution of protein and we would hit that leucine threshold more frequently. So instead of hitting it in that in example twice per day, we'd hit it three times per day. Play that out over time, that would make a, a meaningful difference. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in terms of leucine, is there a particular time where it can be optimized better? For example, you know, before or after workouts, or does it not really matter as long as we're getting it over that 24, 40-hour period? can't remember the, 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 the author's name, but there was a, a nice review paper on this a few years ago where they they basically pooled the results of, of different muscle protein synthesis studies and looked at the effects under various different conditions. So, for example, fasted versus fasted with exercise versus fed with exercise and so on. Um, and what they found was that the fed with exercise uh, cause the most robust increases in muscle protein synthesis. Mm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, for example, uh, that it's more important and that as soon as you finish your workout, you need to get protein in immediately. That, that's not necessarily what, what that means, but that they're independent and complementary um, stimulants of muscle protein synthesis so that mm. the, the the exercise from from your training will have a muscle protein synthetic effect and then the feeding will have a muscle protein synthetic effect and they, they'll complement one another the the exercise effect is more prolonged so the the feeding effect will be will be much more short term so you'll you'll get more of a more of a spike um from feeding versus the exercise which would be more prolonged um then in terms of timing uh it, it really doesn't matter what what does need to be sort of uh, what what you do need to bear in mind is um so relating back to our distribution from from a few moments ago is that there needs to be a sufficient amount of time between meals because relating back to our our leucine threshold so once we kind of hit that leucine threshold, um, you can continue to feed, but uh, it won't augment the muscle protein synthesis response any further at that meal. The, the, the whole system needs time to basically reset. And it seems to be somewhere around three to, three to five hours or somewhere in around that. So practically what that means is sort of three to five hours between meals would be ideal for, for maximizing the total daily uh, muscle protein synthetic effect. Um, 
Does that does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. I know no, it's more it's, it's, around the workout. No, it's, it's it's perfect. Obviously, a lot of these um, things that we're going to in our in our industry is very individual. It's very individualized. So I understand it's hard to go. This is the definitive answer because it doesn't exist. Um, but no, it's perfect. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, so if we go on the other end of the spectrum now, we look at we look at training. So what are a few of the fundamentals that people need to have in place to, in order to stimulate that muscle uh, hypertrophy? Uh, well, there needs to be obviously sufficient load. Mm-hmm. So you can do arm you can do arm curls against no resistance all day long. <laughs> And it, it, it won't hypertrophy your biceps. But um, how much weight you need there um, is a little bit... It's, it's, it's highly variable. So for a long time, what we thought was that you needed... You needed to be working at a high percentage of your um, of your 1RM. So we, we thought that you needed to be somewhere in the kind of 70 to 85% of 1RM range to, to cause muscle hypertrophy. In more recent years, what we found is that, or not what I found rather, but what other researchers have found is that uh, you can get a substantial hypertrophic effect from low intensity uh, training protocols or training programs um, once the effort level is is high enough. So, I mean, you can use, for example, 30% of 1RM and bring it close to failure and get a similar hypertrophic effect compared to higher intensity, sort of moderate moderate sort of rep range. Now, practically speaking, I would lean towards the moderate intensity, that sort of classical sort of 8 to 12, you know, plus or minus a few reps uh, range. And the reason being is because um, even though we can get substantial hypertrophy, from lower intensity protocols, they're really, really fucking hard, <laughs> and they're hard to they're hard to progress. So I mean, if you imagine like imagine doing like three sets of thirty to close to failure, even on like a leg extension or something like that, that'd be that's brutal, and that, that's fine for a few weeks or so. But making uh, progress in that over time uh, would be quite difficult. Now, if you had some sort of limitation or some kind of constraint that meant you couldn't lift heavy for a while and that would be an excellent substitute but uh practically speaking it wouldn't be my my main go-to um it also wouldn't be something i would use on uh most compound exercises because obviously as as fatigue sets in technique starts to break down the likelihood of something going gone wrong due to the fatigue you've uh, accumulated um, and it's also ingraining bad bad technique as well you know particularly if you've been a bit overzealous with the amount of weight you selected so it lends itself better to single joints and machine-based exercises so think things like leg extensions leg curls chest press shoulder press uh chest supported roll those kind of exercises um uh, so anyway, relating it back to your original question, um, so we, we need we need a certain amount of load there, and I've just gone off on a fucking five minute tangent about <laughs> how. <laughs> no, it's how brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, there's a there's a big grey area there. Mm. 
So that, that relates back to the, the, the main mechanism of muscle hypertrophy, which is mechanical tension. So when the muscle has to contract under a load and produce force, um, the next thing then is metabolic stress, which probably relates to why the lower intensities can be very effective for, for muscle hypertrophy. Because when you're doing a lot of reps, you're producing um, or you're accumulating a lot of metabolic byproducts. And the theory being that they uh, promote muscle hypertrophy. Uh, so those two mechanisms are, are, are at play when we're talking about hypertrophy. Um, the next thing you sort of want to factor in is volume. So this is something that's uh, quite interesting within the literature and uh, it seems to be kind of the, it seems to be more important than intensity. So if you think your three primary training variables, volume, frequency, and intensity, volume seems to be the most important. So once a certain amount of, or a certain threshold of volume is hit, again, that's completely inter-individual and depending on genetics, training history, uh, all those kind of different factors. But once that threshold is hit, um, the intensity at which you got there doesn't really seem to matter as much. So you could use 30% of 1RM and use sets of 20 to 30, or you could use uh, 60% of 1RM and use sets of 10 to 12, um, and you could get equivalent hypertrophy once the volume and effort are roughly matched. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I know which I'd be going for if I had a choice of those two variables. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it make, makes perfect sense. We hit that mechanical tension, metabolic stress, you know, accruing enough volume over the over the week in order to stimulate that growth. Um, it seems to be more important than uh, than the actual load itself. Um, yeah, no, as you said there, which which is super interesting. You think the load have a more of a um, dramatic, I guess, effect on the on the on the muscle tissue, but apparently hitting it frequently enough is pretty much all we need. Yeah, well, I suppose if I was to use the analogy of, of nutrition, it's it's kind of the same thing, whereby you need enough to stimulate the pathway yeah. uh, to get the acute hyper, um, protein synthetic response, and beyond that, there's no real additional benefit. Mm. So if you think about it, what you're trying to do is you're trying to hit a minimum threshold to stimulate the muscle. Um, stop there. This is talking training now. Um, stop there. Go away. Feed. Sleep. Recover. Adapt. Come back. Train again. So stimulate. Uh, feed. Recover. Adapt. And repeat. You know. Yeah, it makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense actually. I like the analogy of putting it into into nutritional perspective. Next up, I wanted to talk about programming for strength. A lot of people do make a, uh, I guess it's probably with hypertrophy too, but definitely with strength, make the um, assumption that they constantly need to be lifting at a percentage of their one RM. It constantly needs to be 85, 90% one RM, whatever it is, to build strength. Now I wanted to talk a little bit on programming, how you think about programming for for getting somebody stronger. So if somebody's walked into you, what are the sort of processes that we need to go through when we're looking at intensities, loads, things of that nature? 
well, the first thing I'd need to know is uh, we'd have a pretty detailed conversation about their, their training history. Mm. Now, assuming they have a few years under their belt, I would talk to them about the nature of their training or what it used to look like. And, you know, if it was a case of, well, I used to work up to a, a max and then I might do a couple of back offsets after that. Um, already you're thinking, okay, just by moving slightly away from that and uh, giving them a, a more sub-maximal routine, that's going to let them dissipate a lot of fatigue that has been built up over time. Um, now, they've obviously got to a point where they can tolerate it because they're still able to go to the gym and, and do that. Um, but whether it's whether it's ideal for what they're trying to do, which is a, a express their strength, um, I'd have my doubts. So I, I'd, I'd move them back onto a more sub, suboptimal approach and give them a bit more volume. Um, I might... I'll, and. You know, even before we've done that, I look at their technique as well. So is there anything that we can change technically that will allow us to add weight to the bar? So basic things like, for instance, if, if a guy has, guy or a girl has a chest fall on a squat. So as they, they hit the bottom of the squat and you see their chest kind of collapsing slightly and their knees shooting back, things like that. So we would firstly look at that and cue them through it and see if we can improve those uh, technical deficiencies through queuing. If that can't be achieved, then we might look at using an exercise, an assistance type exercise to reinforce the positions that we want them to, to be in, in their competition exercise. So that might be a safety bar squat, a paused squat, a pin squat, front squat, whatever tool we deem uh, is most appropriate to try to get that job done um, for the individual uh, we, we might use that so that, so there's the technical side of things and then there's I suppose the, the programming side of things now I gave an example of someone who, who comes to me and they're used to hitting a lot of maxes um, from their, their previous training because I think that was kind of what you were getting at with your question or yeah like someone who's just generally come like you know we're looking at a typical gym goal whether that's intermediate beginner or otherwise that isn't used to how to program strength they come to you and go cool every time I go in I lift as heavy as I possibly can right yeah so you could make the argument that they're not that far far off the mark either because one of the things that underpins strength is specificity. And so you have specificity with the, the, the exercise. So for instance, the exercise that you train is where you're going to get the most improvements and there'll be some carryover to similar exercises. So for instance, if you trained, so if you were untrained and we gave you a training program for 10 weeks of back squats, you'd see the greatest improvement in your back squat. You might see a little bit of an improvement in your leg press and a little bit less in uh, something like a leg extension. So that, 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 that demonstrates the kind of the generality and specificity of, of exercise selection. Um, the Another facet of, of specificity is to do with rep ranges and intensities. So again, you'll get best at what you train. So if you train at or near a max, 
that's where you're going to get uh, strongest at. The problem is, is it's very hard to keep up over time. You know, now there is a very famous um, uh, training methodology, the, the Bulgarian system, where they basically max out once or twice a day every day. Um, but those guys are, are well supplemented. <laughs> um, also, it, not not only that, but there's a high uh, high turnover of athletes there. So I mean, the genetically less blessed will fall off, mm. and those that are able to tolerate it will will keep doing so and keep uh, uh, pumping themselves with the, the substances necessary to be able to allow them to do that. <laughs> Um, but um, but anyway, yeah. So so the specificity of the intensity and the rep ranges that you use, so you'll get best of what you uh, what you're training. But as I was saying, it's, it's hard to keep that up over time. The other thing to bear in mind is that training volume does matter. Probably not to the extent like when we were talking about hypertrophy earlier on. Probably plays a larger role with hypertrophy. But it's also important. Uh, when it comes to strength and that at least i believe anyway has to do with um the the the, the training of the how do i describe this it's to do with the physical manifestation of things but it's also skill mediated mm. so when you have higher training volumes you have more opportunities to practice the skill of the exercise um, that you're eventually going to test, be that in a meet or in the gym or whatever. Um, or if you're just training for general strength, you know, same same kind of idea. Um, now, how much volume, again, is going to depend on the individual and how that's comprised, again, will depend on the individual. So it could depend on, you know, training age. So if they're at a lower training age, we'll lean towards a lower volume approach as they progress and over time, you know, you'll get to, you know, the law of diminishing returns. So you have to add more training volume, but it's uh, for the pursuit of a smaller increase in, in, in strength, you know? Um, so more experienced individuals will have higher training volumes. Uh, previous injury history will, will have a role to play there as well as well as chronological age. So those who are younger can generally tolerate higher volumes. Now where that cutoff of young versus old is, is a little bit murky. And there's people who are on the older side of, of, um, of things who can tolerate higher training volumes than younger individuals. But just as a, generally speaking, younger individuals can, can tolerate higher volumes. Um, Injuries as well. So if someone has, you know, a history of like, you know, bad uh, knee pain or elbow pain or um, maybe they, they get flare-ups in their backs, things like that, we want to be careful with not overloading them with, with too much training volume. And also how we get there is important as well. So we're, we're not spiking them with a, you know, we're not adding a shit ton of volume all of a sudden progressively adding volume and so to give you an example there if you think of <laughs> so I, this is an example that anecdotally i've seen a lot where a guy might take a little bit of time off training um and then 
they kind of get a bit annoyed at themselves and they say, right, I'm going to hit it really hard now uh, on, on re-entry to training and they'll, they'll start with something stupid like a small off junior where they're doing an exercise four times a week and then two weeks in they're like, man, my elbows are fucking killing me. What, what's going on? And it's like, well, no shit, Sherlock, you've spiked your volume from basically nothing to an absolute shit, shit load almost overnight. So we try to avoid spikes like that. Now, that's an extreme example. But mm. the same kind of idea applies. So, I mean, if we if we wanted to get someone training more frequently, we wanted them to have more exposures to a particular exercise, say a squat or a bench press, for instance, and we feel... So just humor me for a moment. Let's just say that we, we deem that we need to get them up to training at movement four times per week, but they're currently only at twice per week. Well, we'll start by moving them to three times per week, get them used to that and adapting and recovering from that before we move on to four times a week. So the, the progression of frequency is gradual, you know, same as the progression of the load on the bar. That, that happens over time as well. So would it be a, I guess, a smart idea to go between, especially for longevity as well, go between periods of accumulation intensification? So volume and intensity sort of uh, uh, invertently sort of re- the relationship. So we'll go a little bit more volume sometimes for, say, a four-week block, and then we're going to a four-week block, say, of strength with deloads in there as well. Um, yeah, I probably don't see them as distinct as a lot of other people do. You know, like a, a, a typical hypertrophy phase, if you like, or accumulation block, if you like. Um, most people tend to associate that with like just generally higher reps. Mm. And then intensification blocks are lower volume, lower uh, rep um, type stuff. Um it, it really just depends on the person's goal. You know, if someone's just a trainer for general strength, they may not really need to do an intensification block, if you like. Um, whereas if you had someone training for powerlifting meet, then obviously it's going to be dependent on when that is, and you you periodize your training around that. Um, now, powerlifting meets can kind of pop up so to speak, you know, you could get a meet with maybe three months notice Mm. and you, perhaps you were in an accumulation phase and then all of a sudden you, you know, your goalposts have changed slightly because this, this new meet that appeals to you has, has come up. So you might alter your training slightly, um, as a, as a result. Um, so I suppose I'm not really answering your question very well. That's <laughs> no, all right. Uh, it, it, essentially, it, it, it depends on the individual and their goal. And it would really, it would need to be assessed on a, a case-by-case basis. Um, but I, I think, were you kind of getting at it from a injury management standpoint? Yeah, injury management and longevity too. Like um, if we're looking at someone that, again, looking at, Small off junior and going, okay, I need to get really, really strong at the back squat, so I'm going to do small off junior, squatting four times a week. Would that person then have to continue as adaptation occurs, need to squat four times a week to continue to make progress, or do they 
go, okay, I'm gonna hit these four times a week, really, really high intensity, and then I'm going to switch things up by going into, say, let's go more of a hypertrophy-based phase, allow for recovery, um, give the nervous system a little bit of a break as well, and then go back into something like that? Um, well, I suppose here's one way that you could look at it. Um, so, obviously, the absolute load on the bar is a is a factor to consider when you're when you're talking about injury risk and the more weight that's on the bar obviously the higher that risk is um and the you know within individuals the higher they're working uh, as a percentage sorry the higher the percentage of their one rm that they're working at you could you could infer from that that the higher the risk of injury um also exposure to high intensity novel stimuli um pose an increased injury risk so like a a a great way to increase your risk of hurting yourself would be if you walked into the gym and said hey i'm going to do an exercise that i haven't done in about three months and i'm going to max out on it (laughs) That, that that would be a good way to try and get yourself hurt um when we look at Injury risk across different strength sports. Um, powerlifting would be higher than bodybuilding, and strongman would be a little bit higher than powerlifting. So that would be related to the absolute loads that they're using. So if you think about a bodybuilder, tends not to lift terribly heavy, at least not as a percentage of their one or M. Now they might be strong, but they're not going to be working in a in a sorry at an intensity uh, that's close to a maximum because it's not required for their sport you know they're only interested in hypertrophy they don't need to tap into those higher intensities because obviously as you move up higher in intensity you have to compromise on the volume which wouldn't be smart from their point of view and a powerlifter on the other hand tends to be working at a higher intensity and generally lower volumes particularly if we were to take the example of like you were saying like an intensification block where the loads are higher, the, the intensity is higher, all that kind of stuff. So you'd say at that, that point there are a little bit of a higher risk of injury there. Um, the strongman uh, tends to train at, well, that can that can vary quite a bit depending on the individual. I, I won't sort of give any generalities there. But what you can see in, in strongman is uh, novel sort of exercises that they have to do as part of their competition. And, you know, anecdotally, I've heard stories of things like, you know, their, their warm-up rooms can be absolutely pathetic, whereby they might have 60 kilos in a warm-up room, deadlift that for 10 reps, put the bar down, and they're told, right, Johnny, you're, you're out on the platform there, your opener is 360. So that's why you tend to see, um, if you think of powerlifting and strongman, there's a higher rate of injury in powerlifting training as opposed to competition. Whereas in strongman, there's a higher rate of injury in competition as opposed to in training. And that's related to, I suppose, they're lifting at heavier intensities in a competition and the exercises are a little bit more novel. You know? Um, Now, trust me, I'm going to make sense of this in a moment. (laughs) The bodybuilder 
who's typically working at a lower intensity um, has a, a lower lower uh, injury risk or at least the rate of injury in bodybuilding tends to be lower and that's related to uh, the fact that they're probably not pushing the the intensity or the absolute load as hard as the um, as the powerlifter or the strongman I would also suppose that there's some sort of a protective effect. So they're conditioning because they've, they're training with such high volumes um, at a lower intensity. So they're probably providing some sort of a protective effect against injury by training in that manner. So if we take that little bit of evidence and we apply it more generally, um, there would probably be a lower risk of you getting injured if you did more of your training similar to a bodybuilder lower intensities slightly higher volumes um kind of moderate rep ranges for the most part compared to let's say if you flip that and did mostly heavy stuff and only did hypertrophy stuff every now and again so i would say the vast majority of your training should be in a moderate typical you know in inverted commas hypertrophy um sort of range and then only intensify as you're getting close to some sort of a test or a meet or that kind of thing does that make sense yeah no perfect makes perfect sense um that would be how i would view it on an overview level anyway yeah, no, I love that. I love that on the spectrum now. It, it got me sort of thinking of like, yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Like generally bodybuilders, you know, you might like have a, a few little niggles here and there, but in terms of risk of actual injury, like you do see a lot of strong men like and, and powerlifters really fuck themselves up uh, because because of the nature of that, because of the, the loads and stuff and the intensities that they are, they are lifting at. And obviously the other things yeah. that you mentioned. One, one thing I would like to mention in that as well is that all three of those sports compared to most sports have a much, much lower rate of injury. But if you're looking to like really uh, protect yourself as much as possible, sticking to a moderate rep range or a moderate intensity would be probably, would probably carry a lower level of risk compared to training at higher intensities where the absolute load is, is higher, you know, um, that kind of thing yeah um and i'd say probably powerlifting is substantially a, a lower risk compared to to strongman mm. like the strongman it's not a case of if you'll get injured it's a case of when. <laughs> um powerlifting there's things you can do and that the sport is a lot more forgiving um particularly with what you can do in training and you can mm. modify things a lot and still be able to train and still be able to make progress you know mm. um so for instance like if, if someone has someone's experiencing pain in say their competition lift be that their competition squat and when i when i say competition squat i mean the the stance and the um i suppose the procedure that they adopt when they perform that exercise in competition so let's say their their lower bar back squat is causing them pain but a safety bar squat or a front squat isn't painful. Well, then we can train a very similar pattern 
uh, in a way that's not painful for me. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of sports where you can do that. Do you know? Yeah. So powerlifting can be kind of forgiving that way in that you can you can work around a lot of things. No, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Whereas, as you said there, strongman and a lot of other sports, there's actual things you have to do. Like, regardless if you want to, you have to do the Atlas Stones or whatever it might be in a sport. Yeah, yeah. So if we touched on creatine, creatine is arguably the, the most well-researched supplement on the on the planet, but how does that affect performance? What does it actually do to to help improve performance from a cellular and a neurological perspective oh man <laughs> um right well I, I i'll preface this by saying i'm a little bit rusty on some of this <laughs> um what you might find is that i'll be talking and hesitating and then stuff will sort of come back to me in dribs and drabs but i'll do my best so basically under normal unsupplemented conditions uh you have a typical store of phosphocreatine in your muscle and that um, that fuels very high intensity exercise. So if you think like weightlifting, sprinting, those kind of things. So if you think of your your three energy systems, you've your your phosphagen system, which is what I've just briefly described there, um, your glycolytic system, and then your aerobic system. Now they're not on off switches so it's not a case of whereby you you you, you know it's not like it's not like you're playing a, a game on the on the playstation it's like okay select energy system uh we want the phosphagen system for this exercise and oh no we want the aerobic system for this exercise they're all contributing it's just the relative contribution of each one will vary so if you think of it being not like a light switch but more like a dimmer switch where you can adjust the intensity of the light. So during high intensity exercise, the contribution of the aerobic system is going to be uh, quite small. Whereas in a long distance run, the contribution of the, the phosphagen system is going to be low and the aerobic system is going to be high. Um, Again, all contributing, it's just that the relative contribution will will vary. Now, uh, creatine. So, the, the long story short, the creatine will supplement that phosphagen system. So, it'll basically top it up. So, if you supplement with creatine and you increase the total muscle creatine stores, that gives you a little bit of a... Um, extra supply of creatine for high intensity exercise so you know things like getting an extra rep in a set of eight or a set of ten um or allowing you to lift a little bit more weight at that kind of that kind of rep range that's kind of where creatine would would fit in for a strength um strength focused individual now, it does some other stuff as well, and there's some interesting research that uh, I haven't looked into in great detail, but I am aware that it exists <laughs> um, on the, the effects of creatine in the brain. 
and there does seem to be some evidence to suggest that it's uh, beneficial for for the brain and uh, provides a neuroprotective effect. Um, there's also some stuff suggesting that it might have a direct effect on muscle hypertrophy. It also increases uh, hydration within the muscle because it stores more water. Um, and for I suppose a better um, for a better and more thorough explanation of what creatine does, uh, I direct you to Eric Trexler. So if you go onto the Stronger by Science website and just search Eric Trexler creatine, he has some good articles on on creatine on that website there. Um, much better than the fragmented. <laughs> story I've given you there. No, it's perfect. I mean, but, uh, you've you've long said story it. short, yeah. kind of that's kind of the, the 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 basics of what creatine does. No, perfect. And what about caffeine? How does caffeine affect performance? Caffeine is a very interesting subject uh, supplement. Um, one of the things that interest that is interesting to me about caffeine is the genetic response to it or the, I suppose the genetic predisposition. So there's a small percentage of the population, I think it's about 8 or 10%, that um, have an expression of a particular gene that makes them slow metabolizers of caffeine. And if you're a slow metabolizer of caffeine, um, you don't seem to get the same benefits from it. Um, you tend to be more inclined to get negative effects from it. So you'll hear some people that um, don't do well with, with caffeine, you know, don't like coffee and things like that. And there, there seems to be some sort of a, it's not just a personal preference thing. It seems to be there's some sort of genetic basis for that. Um, so if you're someone who's been told about the great benefits of, of caffeine, but when you try it, um, it just makes you feel unwell. Maybe you get um, kind of jittery, um, and just just don't don't feel good off it. Um, it. It is possible that that's not just um, uh, in your head that that it might actually be the case. So, um, if you're experiencing sort of bad symptoms from from caffeine, uh, it's okay not to to use it. But for those that it it does benefit uh, the faster metabolizers of caffeine. So you'll see uh, acute benefits on uh, various different um, markers of performance from endurance-related activities to strength-based activities. Um, something that uh, we did with caffeine a few years ago um, as part of a study I was assisting on was we saw a recovery of strength with caffeine supplementation following an exercise session. So what we did was we we tested quadriceps strength um, in the left and right legs, or and then we, we designated one leg as a um, a non-exercising control leg. So it's like within subject control. Then we'll exercise one leg. Um, so we fatigued it. We'll measure that that fatigue. So we'll we'll know what the decrement was after the training. Uh, sorry, after the training session, supplement with caffeine and then retest max strength in the two legs. And what we saw was that um, compared to a placebo, if you supplement with caffeine after training, 
and you retest your strength, um, it will recover the strength that was lost from, from training. Now, that was more of a proof of concept type study. And it, practically speaking, you wouldn't really do that. You wouldn't have your caffeine after your training. Um, you also probably wouldn't be testing your strength after a training session. But as a proof of concept, it was cool to see that we could recover some of the, the force that was lost after the, the training session. Um, for more detail on caffeine and its performance benefits, there's um, there's a researcher. He's actually, I think, he, I think he's Croatian, but he's actually based in Australia. Um, Jozo Gurdjik is his name, and how you spell that is J O Z O, and then Gurdjik is G R G I C. So he does a lot of work on caffeine and has done some excellent uh, literature reviews on it as well. So it kind of synthesized all the studies on caffeine and kind of, you know, asking the question of like, right, caffeine, what's the deal here? What does it actually do um, when we review all the different studies on it? So he'd be a good one to, to go to. Um, just my my memory of a lot of it is a bit um, shit at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like caffeine as there's there's a reason why coffee and energy drinks are so popular it's because they're effective you know they will um they have the potential to increase um strength compared to you know not supplementing with caffeine they also decrease perceptions of effort so if you imagine like you're trying to get through a tough training session um or no hang on let me let me propose two different scenarios so you have a hypothetical hard training session. Um, say it's like three sets of 10 on squats or something like that. Um, you give someone a placebo, get them to do the session, um, get them to come back again, give them caffeine, get them to do the train, same training session. Their perception of effort will be lower under the, the, the caffeine condition, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and that's related to its effects in the brain. So, there's a there's a um, neurotransmitter. I think that's the right term. <laughs> Adenosine that basically builds up in the brain while we're awake. Um, it's it's a trigger for you know falling asleep and that kind of thing. So the more of it that accumulates, the more inclined you are to want to go to sleep. Um, what caffeine does is it binds with the receptor. The, the adenosine receptor so it blocks adenosine so it, it doesn't let it um, exert its effects in the brain which cause that you know desire to want to go to sleep kind of thing um, now that's a bit of a double-edged sword because that can be very helpful when we want to get through a hard training session but it can be very not so helpful when we want to go to sleep so we need to be careful that you know we don't uh the, like the easiest way to try to, to mitigate that is to not have caffeine too late in the day. And I'm an absolute hypocrite when it comes to that. But uh, <laughs> like a lot of things in life, it's uh, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm with you there. I'm with you there, mate. I, um, I love talking to people about their routines and what they sort of do to, to structure their day, to, to potentially be able to pick little things and optimize my own life and obviously the, the audience's life as well. So what does, a, 
What does a typical morning look like for you? How do you optimize that, that morning routine? If you have one, or is it more of a, I get up and just see what the day brings me? Oh man, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> 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 uh, I, honestly, things are, are not the best at the moment because um, I'm, I, I'm sort of lacking the, the accountability of being in a work environment where there's, there's, there's sort of a obligation from the fact that those around you are working yeah. whereby you know it would force you to get in to get into a, a working state i'm not as well driven as you might think i can i have the tendency to be very very lazy at times um, and sometimes getting myself going can be very difficult um sometimes i'm fine and others uh, it just takes me a while to get going uh, so i don't have any great tips on increasing your productivity and that kind of thing uh, it's something that i actually genuinely quite struggle with and particularly at the moment because i'm stuck at home basically all day so i suppose sometimes you get into your head and you're sort of like you wake up and you're like well shit i have all day to do everything um and then before you know it it's the afternoon and you've very little to show for the day uh, i can be guilty of that a lot um but uh yeah, I don't have much else to no, say. No, I love it. That, you know, not, a, not an expert on productivity for them. Thank you so much for your honesty. I think a lot, a lot of people will or do relate to that. I, I, I know myself, I try to have some sort of structured routine and stuff, but sometimes just it just does not happen. And you can sort of beat yourself up a little bit about it, but I think it's just allow, allowing yourself to know it, it's okay. Just don't make sure it's an everyday thing and you become a lazy shit. Sure, yeah. And... Well, one thing that definitely does help me, and I'd say this will probably uh, be across the board for most people, is having some sort of accountability and some sort of deadlines there. Mm. So let's say, for instance, right now with my PhD, so I have specific dates to have specific chapters of my thesis sent on to my supervisors for review. And if I don't have them sent on at that date, you know, it's not going to be like a sort of a finger-pointing you were you were ball boy there like kind of thing but um there'd be a a sort of a well you you kind of let yourself down here as much as you let your supervisors down yeah so that gives you that kind of that stick if you think like the carrot and stick sort of analogy that gives you the stick to sort of motivate you to to get stuff done on a day-to-day basis um now my my motivation day-to-day can can waver quite a bit. Um, usually when I kind of get into something, I'm okay. It's, it's getting started. It can be the difficult thing. So, I mean, if I'm writing, for instance, uh, the, the, the hardest paragraph to write is the first one. Yeah. You know, um, that's generally what I find anyway, but, but yeah, having some sort of accountability from, from someone around you, um, be that some kind of a supervisor or a peer or a colleague and some sort of a deadline. So, you know, if you have, some sort of a deadline to have some task done, um, that will help, usually. No, I couldn't agree more, I could not agree more. What are a couple of things that you're reading at the moment? Are you reading anything at the moment that's quite interesting in terms of books? Have you seen anything, read an article, watched a movie, a TV show, something that people could check out purely for either entertainment reasons or from a, from a knowledge perspective? Yeah, um, Jesus. Uh, at the moment, a lot of my reading is obviously research papers. Mm. 
because that's my focus at the moment. Oh man, it, it really depends on what floats your boat, like you know. Um, when I do watch stuff, uh, like like I'm either sort of fully switched on or fully switched off. So I'm either working at my at my desk on my laptop doing shit, or I'm watching comedy or I'm watching sport. There's usually there isn't one in between. I tend not to like you know read books or stuff. Just because, like, I'm reading so much yeah. during the day that I kind of get a bit sick of it. Uh, so I tend to want to be either fully switched on or fully switched off. Um, so, and even at that, I'm trying to think of something, anything useful for your listeners, and I'm, I'm literally, I'm blanking. <laughs> what are you studying at the moment? <laughs> so my, my PhD is sort of centering around effective measurement, so what that means is, so if we take a measurement of a particular uh, fitness component, it needs to be valid. So by being valid, it means that it measures what it intends to measure. It needs to be reliable. So if we took the same subject or the same athlete and got them to perform the same test um, on a re- repeat occasions under the same conditions we should see the same or very very similar results so that's what we would consider a reliable test or uh, the the reliability of a test Mm -hmm. and then the sensitivity of a test which is basically how sensitive is a test to detecting change and that's related to its reliability so to give you an example uh, if you take something like body composition right so there's various different ways to assess body composition um even making it more simple, if we said just just your body fat percentage. So if we took something like a, a DEXA scan, and we say that the the error associated with the DEXA scan might be say, uh, let's just say for argument's sake it was a kilo, right? So if we measured your body fat and it said you had ten kilos of fat, well you'd know that that's kind of plus or minus one. So the error would be one kilo. Um, and for any hardcore scientists out there, I'm not saying that this is exact <laughs> numbers. I'm just using arbitrary examples just to uh, demonstrate a point. Anyway, back to what I was saying. So let's say that the, the, the error around that 10 kilos of fat was plus or minus one. So that means for there to be a real change, it has to be outside of that error range. So you would have to, if you did some sort of a fat loss protocol, you would have to be outside of that range of error for the changes to be considered real. So that's what we mean when we term when we mean the term sensitivity, um, and that that applies to various different measures of you know performance or exercise science or what have you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. What got you into wanting to choose that particular area to study? Do you get a choice with that when you do your PhD? Um, well, the story of my PhD is a is a troubled <laughs> uh, relationship. Um, so, basically, okay. So this is going to sound arrogant as fuck, but I had pretty good results in my in my uh, in my bachelor's degree. And normally what you would do if you were eventually going on to the PhD level is you would do your bachelor's, your master's, and then PhD. 
Um, but because my results were so good from my my bachelor's, honestly sounding such an arrogant prick here, but anyway, <laughs> um, I bypassed the master's stage and I went straight to PhD. Um, and I got in on a scholarship. But part of the criteria for determining who gets a scholarship is obviously the, the candidate, the supervisory team, and the project. So the project I got in, on in was actually to do with uh, omega-3 fish oil supplementation and recovery from uh, strength training. The title was very vague, and it, 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 it sounded... It sounded snazzy, but it wasn't really. Um, and once we kind of got into it, after about eight or nine months, there was some research from other labs that was suggesting this paradigm that we're trying to fit the, the fish oils into, I don't think it's really going to work. So then we kind of said, right, what supplement might work in this paradigm? And then I just kind of threw out HMB. I don't know if you've heard of that beta-hydroxy, beta-methylbutyrate, mm. it's a it's a metabolite of leucine. Mm. Now, the problem with HMB is that it has a very tainted recent history because there were some studies from a, a, a lab in in, in, uh, in the US, anyway, um, a few years ago, um, that found some very extraordinary steroid-like results with HMB, and there was some very serious accusations of fraudulent science labeled against them. So the problem was then, you mentioned that you're researching HMB and you're immediately met with this kind of uh, sort of a judgmental frown, if you like. Um, Not only that, but I wasn't overly convinced of HMB even at that point. I sort of just threw it out, almost a little bit throwaway. And my supervisor was was dead keen on it. I wasn't. So he was kind of encouraging me down this HMB route and I was sort of a little bit reserved and then over time the the relationship with with that supervisor sort of soured we eventually went our separate ways and I continued to be a PhD student working with the man who was my co-supervisor and is now my main supervisor um and the the whole thing about measurement and that that was a side project while all this messing around with HMB was going on. Um, I was doing that on the side because at that point I wasn't really doing much beyond going into PhD meetings and kind of getting nowhere. Um, so eventually then just kind of went down this route of uh, measurement and assessment of, of maximum strength, um, specifically in, in isom- isometric squat testing is, is what I'm focused on. And it was it's not that it was a passion of mine for many years before I went into it. It was basically something I stumbled upon. Um, and I've, I've grown to quite enjoy it and I actually quite, quite like the topic area now. Um, and speaking with some guys based in the IRFU, so Irish rugby, um, there does seem to be, and this was to my surprise when I was talking to them, it is something that is actually being used in the field. Um, and the reason being is, practically speaking, so if you think of most people, you know, yourself or myself, could probably teach most people how to squat. But if you have like a six foot six second row rugby player, uh, it's very difficult to get them to squat to an appreciable depth. Um, you, you look at the 
heterogeneity or the, the variance in body types across a, a, a rugby squad and you can get very varying um, positions in a back squat or certainly in their bottom position. So it's hard to kind of standardize the depth of a back squat across mm. something like a, 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 a squad of rugby players. The beauty of an isometric squad is that you can bring those guys in during the preseason, set them up, establish where their position is, and even if it differs uh, player to player, the within subject position is going to be the same. So let's say uh, two guys come in, uh, one guy starts off with, he's on, say, rack 16, and another guy's on rack 14. When they come in in 6 or 10 or 12 weeks' time, they're going to conduct the test in the exact same position again. So even though that between subjects it differs, within subjects it's the exact same every time. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. No, brilliant when you, th- when you put it in that perspective. Um that's going to be very interesting. I, I'm actually really excited to sort of see where that goes and how that's going to apply and implement two two spots in the future. Yeah, and I think it was important for me to sort of know that there was some sort of um, there was some sort of practical use of the research. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very sort of pragmatically driven. So if I don't see practical relevance of something, I'm not that enthused by it. I think that's probably partly why some of the supplement research it didn't really it didn't really appeal to me in the same way. Whereas this, I can actually see real application for it in in a sporting context. You know, mm. um, so yeah, I suppose that's that's why in a long long way round of doing it, I've I've found the the right area for me. <laughs> nah, that's cool. Is that was really cool, mate? I would be really appreciative of the time. But lastly, where can people find you to reach out, say hello, and and sort of see what you're doing and where your journey takes you? Um. So my this is going to sound a little bit strange, but my preferred place for people to to go to, and this is sort of a shameless plug, is actually the the Instagram page for my podcast. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah. So what is go, it? Yeah, so if you go to No Lift Podcast, all all one word on Instagram, so literally No Lift, as in that was No Lift. <laughs> um, it was it was actually a tongue in cheek title that we came up with initially, and then it's just stuck. Um, but anyway, yeah, No Lift Podcast on Instagram would be the best place to to follow me, uh, or if they and if they want to listen to my own ramblings and interviews with other other people, they can they can check out the podcast. Uh, they'll find the, the link to it in my bio. Um, or if they have a follow-up question, they can just email me, arthur at sigmanutrition.com. Uh, That's perfect, mate. Um, all those will be in the show notes anyway, so I will link the podcast and everything like that in the show notes so people can easily just jump to you and see the co- other conversations and fascinating conversation I'm sure you are having. But, mate, lastly, thank you so much for the time today. No bother at all. You're very welcome.